Good evening, everybody. This is Rich Duncan with Ink Heist, and tonight I'm joined by my co-hosts Laurel Hightower and Shane Douglas Keene. And tonight we welcome Todd Kiesling back at, to the show, and we're going to go even more in-depth in um, the second episode of our Devil's Creek podcast series. Um, we're going to get a little bit more into the book this time around and, uh, you know, our usual crazy antics. So <laughs> how are you doing tonight, Todd? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, it's been a crazy week, but, you know, capped it off with some good news. And, you know, I don't have COVID. That's awesome. That, that is, is incredibly awesome. awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, I haven't left my house in about 20 days now, so I'm pretty sure I don't either. <laughs> it's, it's actually hiding right outside your window. It's just waiting for fighting the sun. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay it'll get bored and go hit up your neighbor exactly which is fine with me as long as it goes the right way because <laughs> he, he was singing again earlier oh this is the this is the neighbor that you know does the horrible plays the horrible music plays the horrible guitar the whole nine yards yep <laughs> you, got a, you got a singing neighbor uh, not, that's what he calls it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you've got a an atonal screaming neighbor. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. You nailed it, and he's very good at it. Atonally screaming, I mean. <laughs> uh, he's also got an atonal high register he hits every now and then. Oh wow! For about five minutes straight. Uh. Have you gone over to check on it just to make sure that somebody isn't, like, you know, squeezing his balls in a vice or something? Uh, you know, if I went over there, I probably would be that guy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, no. And on this episode, <laughs> the gang stops Shane from squeezing his neighbor's nuts in a vice. <laughs> more like the gang encourages him. I was going to say, that's a different gang. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, I don't know what gang you're talking about, but have you met this crew? <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> oh, I'm sitting, you know what? I'm sitting here just trashing him on our podcast, and he'll probably listen for the first time ever now. Yeah, yeah he'll, he'll find out that we have a show. Yeah, if you be, get like a subscriber awkward. and then immediately lose a subscriber, then you'll know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, anyway so uh so todd since the last time we talked to you i know one of the things that you announced um on our first episode about devil's creek was your uh your limited run of the thunderstorm books and you know that that was so cool to see like the response to that like i think that might have been like one of the fastest fastest ones i've seen from thunderstorm in terms of like when they hit the, you know, hit the store, and then they sold out. And I was just kind of curious, you know, what was that experience like for you? Because I know you were really excited about that uh, coming uh, out. Well, so Paul emailed me a couple of nights beforehand, and he's like, you know, I'm sending out this newsletter on Saturday. And uh, <laughs> I'm like, okay, what time? And he's like, it's going out 4 a.m. Pacific time, Arizona time. Like 4 a.m. Are you kidding? 
that's you know that's 7 a.m for us east coasters and i'm like okay so at least let me like tell people to keep an eye on their inbox on saturday so i i tweeted that and i'm, I'm like okay so there's only 52 copies you know I, i'm not you know i'm I'm modest, but you know I know there's also a lot of demand for this thing, yeah. and I want to make sure that everybody gets a fair shot. And so that was my biggest concern because I didn't want it to get like you know snatched up by you know in seconds by you know people who were gonna like sell it on eBay or something. And yeah, you know, so I I at least got to say Saturday, and I'm figuring okay, this thing will probably last until like the end of the weekend because I know like John Quick's sold out in a couple of days, which was, you know, I think is pretty fast. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and then, so I wake up, it's like 10 AM Saturday morning. And I got an email from Paul and he's like, it sold out before I could even go on to Twitter and say anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. I'm like, holy shit. It sold out before he knew it was for sale. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right it was was mind-boggling like i didn't expect it to go that quickly and like you know that thing got announced super early on a saturday morning like i know a lot of people out there they're probably up at that time because they've got kids and whatnot you know young kids but still like i don't recall the last time i was waking up at seven on a saturday i can recall last time (laughs) to bed at seven on a saturday (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly that that's what i said to laurel too because i just had to be up that day i'm like i can't even tell you the last time i was up this early on a saturday morning that i'm always up that early yeah. Yeah. which makes it even more like what the fuck but well it, like i said you know parents with you know little kids are usually up that early because yeah. kids are sadists and they want you to be up and <laughs> You know, I usually go to bed about one or two hours before that early, so. <laughs> and, uh, Todd, that that was your first hardcover, right? Uh, my first Thunderstorm hardcover, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. I wasn't sure if you had any other ones. or. Uh, back when I was still doing things primarily uh, myself, I did a hardcover edition of... Uh, ugly little things which at the time was only like four stories uh this is before i you know got picked up by crystal lake so we did like a limited run of those and uh my first two novels when i was publishing them through my own you know my own company they had hard covers but all the they're all out of print now so yeah this was my first uh first hardcover in a long time and yeah, I'm hoping that uh, I'm hoping with the success of this one that you know I can maybe get Paul interested in doing like my collection and stuff and and hardcover. It's something I want to bring up to him, so we'll see. Yeah, that would be awesome. Um, next time I'll just be like, you know what, Tiny, you're gonna have to chill. Push this button. <laughs> you know what? Like, go see your dad. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't care if your diaper's full. You're gonna sit in that and wait. <laughs> Parenting at its finest. Exactly. exactly. Priorities, man. 
Just don't burn anything down with those matches. <laughs> <laughs> Laurel, the, the parenting counselor on every other podcast. Was... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, that reminds me of this thing I read on, on Reddit last night. And I was kind of like, it was toward, but right before I went to sleep. So I was, you know, half dead to the world anyway. And when you're that tired, the stupidest things make you laugh your ass off. And I'm sitting there on the couch next to my wife and I'm browsing Reddit, just, you know, zoning out. And I see this comment and some genius said, you know, like, well, have you thought about just raising money and saving your kids for retirement? (laughs) 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 And that's I laughed until I cried. I, I, it's so that's so dumb, but like, <laughs> some of the best, like the dumbest shit I've ever read, also is some of the most hilarious stuff I've ever read. And it's all usually from Reddit, and that's right up there with the the one about the guy saying like, yeah, well, if you, you know, if you watch Jaws backwards, it's about a, a shark that goes around puking people's up, and they're still they have to open the beach because there's so many people. <laughs> <laughs> that's so not funny why am i laughing at that? <laughs> oh that's funny it is yeah. it really is that what that one though i mean you may have been tired but that was legit funny <laughs> yeah <laughs> so anyway uh yeah thunderstorm hardcover uh <laughs> really fucking fast uh faster than i, I think myself or paul expected it to sell out and um i'm extremely grateful for it and i wish the postal service would deliver my author copies right oh god they still haven't (laughs) done that like they were supposed to be delivered yesterday and i got an alert this morning that they were in the philadelphia uh distribution center so i'm hoping i get them tomorrow it always trips me out when i it's like i'll be sitting there with a a fresh new book that I got that just came out and like five days later, the author will post, look what finally arrived. (laughs) Fuck, That that seems backwards. (laughs) Well, to be fair, I mean, we wrote the damn thing. So exactly. (laughs) So it's like, I'm not like in any hurry to read it and find out what happens. But you are sitting there going, "Fuck! I want to hold that." Yeah, I want my I want my author copies because I'm fucking yeah. proud of that thing. I mean, that no thing shit. is gorgeous based on the photos I've seen. Uh, it's gorgeous based on what's inside of it too. Thank you. It's a book full of nightmares, which is Damn, something I want to talk to you about. Right before uh, I, I, you know, hopped on with you guys, I was on the phone with my mom, and uh, she said that she got a call from a woman at her church. <laughs> <laughs> and to to say awesome. that you know they that she she ordered my book and my mom's like honey are, are you sure <laughs> you know what you're doing she's like oh i love scary stuff and i'm thinking to myself jesus Christ. <laughs> and i like so i said mom how how old is this lady and she's like she's in her 80s i'm like well <laughs> glad i cut the nursing home scene <laughs> your your mom meantime is quickly changing churches and her <laughs> right yeah i hope that lady's ready 
<laughs> my sister uh, told me that she she like reposted something about Crossroads and somebody she'd known from like high school. She was like, "Does your sister write Christian fiction?" <laughs> <laughs> she was yep. like, "No." Yep. <laughs> like, well, it, will it get you to buy it? Then yes, absolutely. Praise <laughs> she, she did buy it. She did buy it. So I I like you expect an angry email at nice. some juncture. <laughs> yes, it, it it does encourage Christianity. You read this shit and you'll find God. <laughs> actually, that begs the question. So has your has your mom read it? Yeah, uh, my mom's actually read it a few times. Nice. Um, she read it twice when it was still in draft, and she read it again when it uh, was released because she wanted to find out how it changed. Uh, that's one thing I, I will say about my mom. Uh, you know, she's where I got, you know, my first taste of, you know, horror. She was the one who influenced me in that way. She was always reading a horror novel uh, or watching horror films. So um, even though she's not really into horror much now, it doesn't bother her to read it. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. My mom doesn't read any of my stuff. I'm sorry. I mean, well, you know, you can't really blame her. She's dead and all, so, yeah. I wasn't going to go there, but, <laughs> all right. <laughs> I was going to ask if this was like a Norman Bates situation. <laughs> 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 On that note, I'll just shut the fuck up. I'll, I'll picture Shane in like a, you know, a, a nightgown <laughs> and a wig. <laughs> Dude, how did you know? Well, that's just how I roll, man. I, I know that's that. how he always pictures you. You know I, how I, much more <laughs> comfortable. You know how much more comfortable. No, that scares the fuck out of me, Laurel. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what I was gonna say. Something about nightgowns being fucking comfortable, but. <laughs> They're actually kind of scratchy if you get the wrong material, though. I <laughs> uh, see so you're more of a silk guy, not cotton. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, and flannel? Fuck that shit. <laughs> I just picture Shane writing all these angry uh, Amazon reviews. I... <laughs> <laughs> I missed you, fuckers. <laughs> Welcome to Ink Heist. Uh... We're here to promote your book. <laughs> so now we've established that Todd likes to picture me in nightgowns and wigs. Now, are we talking he like. Does, Shane. Are we talking like sheer see through? Or. All right. Time to steer this topic back on track. <laughs> yeah, so speaking of nightmares, <laughs> yeah. um, you, that's something you use a lot in story, and in particular in Devil's Creek, um, to drive the story. You know, it's like, okay, these a lot of these people, especially the main characters, the survivors and whatnot, are, you know, who are totally fucked up, have some really lame-ass dreams. Um, and we haven't said it, but we are going to spoil the fuck out of this possibly. So just in case people, yeah, 
There um, will be spoilers tonight, folks. So. I say that because I'm about to spoil it. Um, but uh, one of the things that was fascinating to me is it's not just them. It's like the other people in the town, even people who have never been associated with Jacob or the church or anything like that, um, are having these fucking creepy ass dreams, you know? And yeah. So I just thought that was interesting that you, that you did that and that you did it well, because usually a book full of dreams is a book I put down before I'm a third of the way through. Uh, I, I appreciate you saying that. Um, I don't know, like, I, I always, dreams are a major part of my life, I guess. I, I I try to pay attention to my dreams, and I didn't really start looking at them as anything but a cliche in fiction until I read uh, Clive Barker's The Great and Secret Show. <clears throat> uh, you know, back Perfect in my example. early... Yeah, back in my early 20s, and... Um, you know, for the folks who haven't read that, one, you need to fucking read that book. It's fantastic. But two, the whole thing is built around this concept of uh, a dream sea that we visit in a metaphysical state when we sleep, like three times in our life. And the idea that this, you know, this metaphysical thing actually exists and it's something that we can actually transport ourselves to and how this the sea is basically just pure it's pure creation in a way it's pure creativity it's pure id and uh you know these things can reach out and influence you and you can influence them and that's always stuck with me ever since i read it and you know, I also take that and I also, you know, marry that up with the fact that my own per- my personal life, like sometimes I've had some extremely vivid dreams in my life and they've often helped me understand things better. And, you know, I'm not by any means, I'm not a practitioner of new age anything or, you know, ritual magic, you know, or anything like that, but. You know, I, I think I would like to think that there's something more to it. I would like to think that there's some kind of, you know, great uh, collective unconscious, you know, as Carl Jung would say, uh, which I'm sure you guys got into with Taft when he was on here for the fearing, because Jung is all over the fearing in concepts. Yeah, um, yeah we talked <clears throat> about it, yeah. Yeah, so... When it came to Devil's Creek, you know, there's the dream scene with Jack when he's after he, you know, the night he finds at after he finds the the idol in the diary from his grandmother. Um, it kind of unearths this buried dream. One, it it serves the purpose of giving you a little bit of backstory, yeah. um, but it also, I think, it creates and establishes a mood that that kind of sets the dread up for what's coming. And as far as like this, this uh, buried God, this thing, this entity that's basically like dwelling inside the earth and has found a way through this, you know, this uh, 
metaphysical fabric into our reality. You know, the idea that it's it can reach out and influence other people because it's it's this massive thing. And I, to me, that's that's in in my mind a one of the the fun parts about cosmic horror is you got this unfathomable thing that you know is looking at you like you're an insect and suppose it has a magnifying glass and decides it wants to burn you for shits and giggles <laughs> you know <laughs> so it you know they it reaches out influences can manipulate people can fuck with them however it wants can tap into their deepest darkest desires if it wants uh, it just is unnatural in in every sense of the word. It is the antithesis of everything that we know in our natural world because we are unable to fathom it. Yeah. And, you know, for it to infect or corrupt everything it touches, everything it, you know, it corrupts time and space, you know, if you... If you know, for lack of a better, you know, phrase. Uh, <clears throat> it's just, it's something that doesn't belong. And it's trying to force its way in. And in doing so, there are, there are repercussions because it, it's existing on so many multiple layers of reality. One of them being this unconscious layer where we're kind of all, in a, in a, in a, in a sense, we all kind of, you know, affect and, we're all connected by it's you know kind of like the same concept as quiddity from great and secret show yeah. it's a this vast you know nebulous ocean that we all dip our toes into from time to time and this one is kind of interesting is in a way it feels like it's kind of that antithesis of quiddity in that it more reaches out than that you visit it you know yeah you know what i mean yeah, um, I, I get it. Yeah, that was that was one thing that I thought was kind of cool is I was going to ask you kind of about the cosmic themes, but like you kind of touched on that it's multiple realms of reality. But one thing that I thought was kind of cool and maybe a little bit different or maybe I just haven't read enough cosmic horror is that it has those elements of, you know, like this being that's just so massive. And like you said, just use people as like an insect but to me it also kind of had like an organic feel to it because the impression that i got was that it had kind of been lurking you know under the surface for you know thousands of years maybe um and i was just curious i know that you don't have to really get into it but i know like it's kind of left vague enough for readers to kind of like piece together but you know there's stuff down inside the hole that indicates that it's been there for a while and you kind of get bits and pieces but i know sometimes you know authors they'll have the backstory like the whole thing of you know like what is this god's name where did it come from what kind of powers does it have they might not use it but they know that's something that you did or is pretty much what you see and the story is kind of about as far as you took it uh I, for the most part, what you see is, you know, what I came up with. Uh, it doesn't have a name because it, you know, in my mind, it, it predates humanity. Like, there's there it's been given names by man, but, 
you know, I, I think the way the the nod to to Lovecraft and the and to Robert Block with the Necronomicon and the Nervermus Mysteries or however the hell you pronounce it, you know, the the Latin translation of you know Void without a name. I mean that that's pretty much the closest you're going to get to a name in itself. Paradoxically, so a Void without a name is a name in itself. Um, yeah. But I, I don't, you know, I, I like to, when it comes to stuff like this, and also knowing that I want to write more in this universe, I left some of that for myself to discover. Uh, like, I know it's not just limited to that area. That's all I'll say. Um you know, the stories that I have, you know, in mind of the next one, which also takes place in the same universe in Kentucky, but after the events of Devil's Creek, uh, it's kind of, it's going to be like in the foothills, you know, moonshine country, eastern Kentucky, uh, Appalachian Mountains. Um, you know, there's, there are going to be elements that tie back to Devil's Creek and this, this entity. Uh, but, you know, I, I, again, I wanted to leave it vague for myself because for me, part of the fun is discovering that stuff as I write. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess that kind of tied into like, uh, another question that I had for you is like, I know that you had kind of put, you know, Easter eggs and connections to some of your other stories and the, uh, the final reconciliation, that one, you know, I picked up right away with, you know, the mention of the Yellow Kings. But I like when I was reading it and I don't know if maybe it's not even connected, but I couldn't help but think of the Harbinger story that you wrote in like Ugly Little Things. And I was just curious if you could kind of touch on how that kind of ties into this. Uh, yeah, that's that's a good catch. I'm glad you caught that because they absolutely exist in the same universe. Uh the the idols the stone idols um i can again i can't really say much because they of how you know the stuff that i do know about them but yeah they're basically you know stone effigies in you know meant not necessarily meant to represent the the beings that you know they commune with and you know they're used to contact they're more representative of the effect they have on the person using it. Hence the, you know, I'm looking at Tony Rapino's version of the sculpture, and, you know, the whole idea is that it's a kind of a androgynous figure in the grip of madness. Because, in a sense, that's what this thing does. You know, it corrupts your mind. And, you know, that's that's a nod to greater tenets of cosmic horror, that something that's so alien that our human mind cannot conceive of it. But if you wanted to look at it on another level, you could also say that it's a religious force that corrupts the minds of anyone it touches. But I digress. <laughs> um, 
I've made no secret about the last one, though. What's that? That it was a popular subject from the last one, though. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. It's okay. Uh, So, you know, with the Harbinger, again, you know, for spoilers for anybody who hasn't read my story, The Harbinger, in Ugly Little Things. um, So, with The Harbinger, the whole... The backstory there that is kind of alluded to but not really spelled out is that they had this mining operation in this town of Dalton, West Virginia, again, deep in the Appalachian mountain range, and they op- they were digging in and opened up into a chamber that had been buried, and they found this idol. So by the time we, the reader, arrive with the, narr- the, the main character, Felix Prouse, on his, you know his mission to get that story for the magazine he works for, you're seeing the effects of what that idol and unearthing it has done to this town. And again, it's, it manipulated the, this town of people into sacrificing their children to it. That's what the church full of dead children is about. Um, and, you know, it's basically... Killing the children and then taking this essence of itself and giving the its worshippers a new child to replace their old child. And then in a sense propagating itself into these little mannequin figures that can do horrible things to you. And to go out and think of them like, you know, seed pods going out to you know sprout somewhere else. So, the I haven't I, I'm not sure if the idol for the Harbinger is for the same entity or not as Devil's Creek, but I would say they're kind of on the same level. And my goal from the start with setting things in the South and kind of bringing cosmic horror out of New England um, was to sort of create my own pantheon. And, you know, I don't know, in, in a modern day setting. Um, so, again, uh, I don't really want to give much more away than that. Oh, yeah, no, that that sounds perfect. And I, I for one, am pretty excited <laughs> about, <laughs> you know, the prospect of, you know, a universe with that thing, with that kind of concept with the idols and, you know, everything like that. And, uh you know, it's kind of cool that you decided to bring it out of New England because I think setting it in the South, especially kind of with, you know, using the idols and kind of like the religious, you know, the religious kind of themes yes. and it, yeah. it, it's that's a perfect setting for it. And I think, you know, makes it a unique kind of branch off of, you know, those traditional themes. Thank you. Absolutely. And this and and also the kind of like subterranean feel to it is is a good match for Eastern Kentucky coal country. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I had that in mind. I had the mammoth cave system in mind. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's that's probably a big a big hint right there. Yes. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. I, 
it made me think of something and you don't have to elaborate on it but i literally when you just said that the first thing that popped into my mind was that show hellier i can't remember if we asked you if you've seen that or not uh did didn't we talk about i know i've talked about hellier i can't remember (laughs) some interview (laughs) i've I've, no offense guys but i've done so many interviews in the last month i don't i've i'm starting to it's all starting to blur together no offense taken, Todd, because that, that was the same thought that I had. I was like, did we ask Todd or was that, you know, I know we talked about it with John. I couldn't remember. It, it was fucking bizarre watching Hellier, you know, after the fact. Like, by this point, by the time I discovered Hellier, the edits were already done. It was already, like, in in arc form. It was already going out into the world. So when I got, you know, heard about Hellier and I started watching it, I'm like, You've got to be fucking kidding me. <laughs> it's just more synchronicities. Oh, shut That's the fuck up. <laughs> so we shouldn't call this episode synchronicities. No. <laughs> no. I'll, I'll drive to wherever you are and kick you in the balls. <laughs> No worries, we won't. I've got nothing going on this weekend except a book I'm procrastinating to finish. I'll fucking do it. <laughs> Solely so you can procrastinate some more. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah, Hellier was interesting. It was interesting at first because, you know, where where Hellier's located, like, I've been through that area so many times. And, you know... Like, for example, so my dad lives in, uh, he lives right outside of Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. You know, that's eastern Tennessee, not far from Knoxville. So you can go north, you know, through into Kentucky, you know, that little portion that's south, south, southeastern part of Kentucky that's like right in the mountains, you know, that butts up against Virginia. And, you know, you can go north and go go west to to Corbin. Uh, and if you instead go east, that'll take you, you know, right by Hellier. And on, you know, over to, you know, 81, you know, through Roanoke to go north back to Pennsylvania. Uh, so it was kind of, kind of bizarre. <laughs> and, you know, I, I was with it first because i was compelled i was compelled to watch it because i was curious about this mystery of this person who emailed them you know and sent them there in the first place and once they started getting into like the mothman and everything like i still i still enjoyed it but it kind of i don't know it kind of just became another hokey paranormal thing rather than a mystery of trying to track down who you know who sent them there and why and all that stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. Like by the end, it was a little bit. I felt like of a let of a letdown. Um, I think the whole Mothman thing is really interesting. But when it came down to the, like, oh my god, we were on the phone for the exact number of seconds that lines up with the guy's fucking zip code. I'm like, none of that matters. <laughs> like, cool, cool story, cool story. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> Show me a ghost or shut the fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> 
uh, I'm, prob- like, I'm probably not their target audience. <laughs> uh, probably I like not. The conviction in your voice there, like you <laughs> ready to kick someone's ass because there wasn't a fucking ghost. Yeah. Well, that last oh spoilers, but that last episode seriously, <laughs> we're gonna sit in this train tunnel and be like, do you hear something? No. Okay, me neither. And stay there for an hour and make us watch that and be like, yeah, I think, I think they found peace. Who? What? What? I don't know. I it was the Hopkinsville goblins, Laurel. It was injured cold, Laurel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's gonna show up at my house tonight, and I'm gonna ask for fucking identification. That guy scares the hell out of me, honestly. Like when I read John Keel's The Mothman Prophecies, that that part always yeah. But he's he's dead now. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to think his ghost. <laughs> you know, I, I can't that that whole aspect of that, I can't take any of that seriously because I always inadvertently tie that into the men in black. And when I think men in black, I think that episode of the X Files that had Jesse Ventura and Alex Trebek playing <laughs> the men in black. <laughs> Know exactly what you're and like I just see Jesse Ventura getting in someone's face saying, you know, something along the lines of, did you know that it commonly swamp gas and the planet Venus are often mistaken for UFOs? <laughs> <laughs> That's probably my favorite X-Files episode. I've seen that a million times. <laughs> I liked the spoof one. Uh, uh, I can't remember all of it now, but just, yeah, where they were each telling the story. And I think it's the same episode. Oh, was that the same episode? Yeah, where the, the, guy, has... he's, the guy's writing the book, and he's interviewing Scully, he's interviewing Mulder. Yes. He's interviewing all yes. different people, and they're giving all their different accounts. And yeah, and Luke Owen is in that. that. Scully curses up a storm, and she's like, what the bleep is this? <laughs> 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 oh, yeah, I couldn't remember the whole episode. That's right. Cool. Told you, I've seen it a million times. <laughs> <laughs> Todd's sitting here giving us verbatim. So everybody, you don't need to watch this. No. <laughs> That's my fucking Close your eyes. <laughs> We're doing such a good job of focusing on your book, Todd. I'm sorry. It's fine. <laughs> no, no, I, I found hey, some... I, I followed you guys off tangent. It's all good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I'm professional. Go professional off tangent person director whatever the fuck um like i was thinking while i was thinking while you guys are talking about that hole the earlier todd said no we can go as deep as you want to and then we're talking about his hole (laughs) well this is awkward i i have no response to that (laughs) that that line is like the best thing to come out of Joe versus the volcano. Thank frankly. you. Thanks. Yes. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because there are just so many times I don't have a response. So. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So I'm going to take us on a totally different tack. Okay. Um, spoilery again. So I really thought it was such an interesting kind of juxtaposition that the church of the Holy flame was, was born of Jacob's father's condemnation of the, of the original congregation of the first main Baptist. I just thought, you know, that was something that, and you know, obviously that, that is not like a huge 
epiphany on my part. Like that's, you know, you set that up very, very well, but I just thought that was such a, you know, because it, it makes you take a very different look at it. Yeah. Uh, that was something I, like, I struggle with writing, uh, not specifically because of the, the history of racism with the town. Like that was a major factor because I didn't feel comfortable writing about it. I really resisted it, but also I initially wanted Jacob to be as like, you know, his origins to be as ambiguous as possible. And that was coming from, you know, that the whole cosmic horror angle. But as I got, you know, further into the story and I started, you know, looking at his character and thinking about, you know, okay, you know, he's a human pawn, just like, you know, all the other human pawns he's creating. Um, you know, maybe, maybe I need to explore this. And, you know, I, I had known already, like I had already, you know, figured out some of the backstory, you know, early on when I was, you know, years ago, before I really started writing it. Because I knew, ultimately, I wanted to touch upon that aspect of Corbin's past. You know, Corbin being the you know basis for Stafford for listeners. Uh, you know, so the events there with Jacob's father condemning, you know, condemning the hypocrisy of the people who the night before had driven all of the black folks out of town uh, over, you know, well, over a misunderstanding. Um, in, in truth, it was a misunderstanding from what I gather from, from the news reports I've read. In my version, you know, for the, the drama and fiction angle, you know, the, it seemed somewhat realistic to me that a you know a couple of guys would disguise themselves in you know paint their faces in grease to you know to for makeshift blackface and then put the blame of you know theft on innocent black folks that's you know that to me is what you know racist white trash would do Yes. And so to further that, to have the town minister condemn them all for their hypocrisy, for even being in church the following day and having him cast out, it, it just seemed, for lack of a better word, it seemed fitting. I don't mean that in a positive way. It just seemed, well, it seemed typical. And that's, you know, we're kind of experiencing something like that along the same lines. It's like, well, you know, I'm just going to ignore, you know, well, I don't like what you're saying, so I'm just going to ignore it. I'm just going to, you know, pretend you're not there. Yeah. I'm going to... Totally stupid. Yeah. And it's, it's this uh, herd mentality. It's this bigoted ignorance that's so prevalent in 
our society as a whole, but I've always looked at Corbin and, you know, by association, Stafford as a microcosm of that. Because growing up, you know, I heard that story. I heard that story. I've heard that story my whole life about, you know, the this awful thing that happened back in the, you know, early 1900s. And, you know, when you get to an age where you start really understanding the implications of that and you start realizing and looking back and thinking, Jesus, I didn't even have any interaction with a black person until I was in college. And, you know, just think about how just isolated this town of people are and how you know, hearing stories about people who were, who stopped and were traveling through, and because they were outsiders, they were run off. They were told to leave. You know, leave your hotel. There's you know a note slid under a door in the middle of the night at a you know roadside hotel because they were black. You're not welcome. And that's so fucked up. And it's something that I feel like my hometown has never really owned up to or faced. And I think that's that's something that I you know, tried to get at a little bit with Stephanie Green, the, the radio DJ, and her statement that's on the wall of the radio station about them kind of holding up the mirror to yeah. Stafford. And, you know, she's kind of rebelling against that and trying to open people's eyes. And the only way she knows how, which is through rock music. And I guess I have a lot of a lot of jumble of thoughts about this because it's I've thought about it for so long. And I was I was so afraid. I was so afraid about that chapter being in the book. Like I, I almost cut it several times. Um because I was afraid of backlash. I was afraid that, you know, that's one more form of grief I don't need in my life. But at the same time, especially now, especially now, I'm glad I did. And because the, at the end of the day, even though it's a horror story, even though it was very cathartic to write about, you know, this town that really for lack of a better, you know, better choice of words, uh, fucked me up, you know, for most of my early life. Um, it was really my way of exposing it for, you know, picking off the scab in a sense. You know, here's this festering rot underneath. Let's all fucking look at it and acknowledge it. Otherwise, it's not going to fucking heal. Yeah, it's something we're not not very good at acknowledging. No, it's you know it's kind of, it was always that that hushed thing that went unspoken. It was the elephant in the room, but on a, a massive town scale. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's the one thing nobody ever talked about. You know, openly. And well, and it, 
Go ahead. No, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, it, it's over the years, it has pissed me off so much. And it has made me ashamed to be, you know, a person who has to say, I grew up there. I'm not proud of it. Uh, and I'm thankful that I got I got got away from there when I could, because I don't I think that if I hadn't, I'd still be there. Uh, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that, you know, to a greater extent, Devil's Freak was written to be a condemnation of Corbin, Kentucky, but also a means of trying to perpetuate its healing. If that makes any sense, even though I, which I think I know for a lot of people is going to sound funny because I, I take a really hard stance against that town in that book. But, you know, I think with what happens at the end with the town and the whole idea of, you know, Stephanie asking Jack, do you think they'll rebuild it? You know, I look at that as the same lines as a forest being leveled so a new one can grow in its place. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I think, I think that comes across so well. I'm, I'm also really glad you didn't cut that chapter for a number of reasons. I mean, as you say, I think currently it's, it's more important than it ever, you know, could be, but also just, I mean, from, yeah, from like you say, like an attempt a little bit at, you know, at redemption, because you can't heal anything like that in until you have it out in the open. Um, And from a storytelling standpoint, it's very compelling. Um, That chapter sort of just, you know, like just really advances it and, and really gives it an extremely human element and the description of, you know, the people who perpetuated that atrocity being in the front row on church the very next day and nodding along without realizing for a second that that sermon is directed at them. Yeah. You know, it's it's so it was just really poignant and just really just well illustrated. And it also was really excellent at answering the question, because, you know, when you when you talk about Imogen, she is you know, she's a very interesting, very cool character, but she is also extremely flawed um, in the way that she handled things in the past. And the, you know, that setup here, when we learn why the church was created outside of the town's limits, really gives you an explanation of why did these people follow? Yeah. You know, why, why were these people involved in it? And this, it's extremely compelling. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, you know, it, in hindsight, and it, this goes, this kind of goes back to the writer not really being aware of the magic as it's happening. And, you know, I, Laurel, and, you know, all of you, I'm sure, have experienced this where you don't really think about it while you're doing it. But after the fact, you realize, huh, that really fit together extremely well. Um, just the, even the church, you know, Jacob's father leave, leaves town and sets up a new church with the best of intentions. And this religion is started again anew with the best of intentions and then over time is corrupted. Um, 
you know, there's always that danger. And, you know, it, it, and I'm not saying it's like this at every church. I'm not saying that at all. I am saying that in my experience, in my personal experience, that's usually the case. You know, you can start something, you can start something with the best of intentions, but when you start discovering you have power over other people and the way they think and you start realizing you can control them just with your words Mm -hmm. that power is going to corrupt anyone who recognizes it and that's kind of what i was getting at you know when i say when i've been you know in interviews i've been saying that devil's creek is a story about how religion destroys a town in a matter of days this on a literary subtext you know level the the evil in the town is religion poisoning the minds of its people yeah and i wanted to write a story about that because i can't think of any other horror story out there and i and i'm not well read i, I have not read everything there is to, in horror by any means, I just know that I haven't read anything like that where, you know, it's, you know, it's always good overcoming evil, power of Christ compels you and all that bullshit. <laughs> and I wanted, I wanted something, I wanted to write a story where it was, you know, in a sense, the, the evil kind of wins to a, to a degree. Uh, and the people who survive, you know, the ones who are trying to stop it, aren't the good righteous people of the town. It's the, the outcasts, the rebels. As it should be. Yep. yep. <laughs> um, was that an aspect of your personality when you were a kid? I know it is now. Uh, what to rebel? Like we talking yeah, about like yeah. Riley? Yeah, were you a rebellious <laughs> kid? Uh, to a degree, um, in my own way, uh, I was never brave enough to really, you know, go all in until college. Uh, yeah. Once I got out from under my parents' thumb and had a taste of freedom, and uh, learned that what it really means to think for myself. Uh, you know, I, I was a quiet kid. I, Riley is the kid, the teenager I wish I'd been. I wish I'd been brave enough to paint my nails black in school. Riley is my spirit animal. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I, I knew from the moment he introduced himself to me that I was going to have fun with his character. Uh, because he, you know, I wanted to be Riley when I was, you know, 15. Uh, you know, and like I, I was never into, I was never into drugs. I never snuck out. I, you know, I never did any of that shit that kids would do back in the 90s and get in trouble and everything. You know, I wasn't a straight A student, but, you know, I also wasn't failing. And, you know, I was an art nerd. I was happy being at home on a Friday night in my room 
drawing or writing or playing a video game or watching a movie, reading a book. Uh, you know, that was perfectly fine with me. I didn't have to be out on the town or at somebody's house partying or drinking or whatever. That wasn't me. And, you know, in hindsight, just for the sake of building a little character, I kind of wish I had. Uh, yeah. You know, it's something that at that time in your, in somewhat in your life, sometimes it's kind of necessary to raise a little hell. And, you know, I also, that's something that, you know, I've talked to my parents about, you know, now that I'm an adult and everything, you know, they used to think like the, 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 the littlest thing was like that I, I would do was just the end of the world. Like they can't believe they'd raise such a bad kid, blah, blah, blah. And like, all I did was bring home a C in math. Um, you know, now like they, they agree. They wish they had, you know, hadn't been so strict because it just, you know, it's inevitable once you get a taste of freedom and the ability to think for yourself for the first time in your life, it's inevitable you're going to push back. So I didn't really become a rebellious kid until I was an adult, technically, legally, you know. And even then, I was still, you know, an uh, introvert in college. You know, I went to parties and stuff, but I didn't, I wasn't like skipping class or, you know, going on like a, a weekend bender. <laughs> being hung over anything that was wasn't my thing i was the classic college kid uh, if it could be done wrong i found a way to do it <laughs> i'm shocked <laughs> shocked and appalled but uh the reason i brought that up um not to dig too personally into your personal life but it was that you injected so much authenticity into the character of Riley that um, it just really, really, that character owned me. You know, I think him and Stephanie are probably my favorites in the whole book. But yeah, I, I, I got to agree with you there. I mean, Jack is, you know, pretty much a mirror image of me, you know, where I'd like to see myself in five years, but... Stephanie and Riley were the biggest surprise. Like I wasn't expecting them to have that kind of a relationship and it, I don't know. It just, it it was so much fun to write about them, especially when they were together. And I don't know. It's like when, when my editor Amelia finished reading it for the first time, she said that, you know, she said that she found it interesting because I had managed to write myself into the book in three different ways. And like, I, you know, I figured she you know, was talking about Jack and she's talking about Riley. Like those are kind of like to me as a teenager, me as a, an adult, you know, but I did, I didn't know what she was talking about the third. And she said, Stephanie, that's your nurturing side. And, you know, I never even thought about that when I was writing it. But she's right. I mean, I just remember. I still remember what it was like being a kid. 
being a teenager, being misunderstood, being unable to connect really on any sort of substantial level with your parents and being constantly in some sort of emotional turmoil because it's all hormones. I mean, you're, you know, you're still developing, you're growing and your hormones are running rampant and they're fucking with you every which way. Uh, so Stephanie was kind of that figure that I kind of wish that had been there to talk to me like an adult and not treat me like a kid uh, and actually respect where I'm coming from and all that stuff. So, you know, I, I, I got to agree with you. Riley and Stephanie are probably my favorite characters in the book. Well, I really, I think Stephanie is great too, because she is able to step into that role of there's a division uh, you know, between she has not had to step into that parenting role yet with him. And I thought something that was really great that you nailed with the relationship between Bobby and Riley um, is that Bobby takes all of Riley's behavior personally. Yep. He feels like everything that Riley does is directed at him instead of simply being something that Riley does that he either didn't think through or he has his own reasons for or, you know, whatever he's doing, it has nothing to do with Bobby. Um, and it's not a rejection of him or his values. And I thought that that was real, you know, because you didn't, I didn't feel like Bobby was completely villainized. You know, you saw a man who was really struggling, particularly with the loss of his wife. Um, and who loved his son and missed the relationship he perceived that they had used to have when he had his wife there as a buffer. Uh, but you see, you know, sort of in flashback with Riley, the closer relationship we had with his mother simply because she was very open armed with him. Yeah. She listened, you know, and I think that that is huge and something that in the years of parenting between an infant and when you're dealing with a teenager that parents can lose sight of is that. A child's behavior, because like you said, you know, you remember being a teenager. You remember those feelings. And I think yeah. that's hugely important because, you know, in, in step parenting, I feel like it was a weird segue I wandered into where I was young enough and hadn't parented that I had a very clear memory of the same way that my stepson felt, you know. So it's like it was easier for me to make that connection for me to realize his behavior isn't about anybody except for him. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the the relationship he has with with Bobby uh, in the book, I mean, is loosely based on the relationship I had with my father when I was a teenager. Uh, you know, my dad and I did not. It's not that we didn't get along; it's just that we didn't relate to one another. Uh, and a lot of that had to do with my mom. I mean, I, my dad and I are on great terms. I love my dad. Uh, and, you know, I've spent the last, you know, 10 years plus in trying to rebuild a relationship that I wish I'd had with him when I was a kid. And, you know, it was inevitable that that was going to come come out when I was writing about that father-son dynamic. Uh, because, you know, just because I remember, again, being a teenager and, you know having dinner with my dad, you know, 
every Wednesday night, you know, we we would go out and just, you know, I would spend the evening with him one night. And it started it started because he was teaching me how to drive. And that became kind of our father son time. But in all that time, I bet we probably had maybe two real conversations because we didn't really know how to talk to one another. And, you know, my dad's very quiet. He's very, he's very much uh, an observer. Like, he will take it all in. He won't, you know, you know he, that's just his, the way he is. Like, he, he's always been like that. And, you know, for a kid trying to talk to someone that they're, they're sort of afraid of, and not because, you know, there's any afraid of in the, in the respect that the, here's this person that you have to spend time with that you don't really know. Not really. Not like you know your mom. Uh, so, you know, you don't really, you don't have that comfort level of opening up about this girl you might like or something that this asshole that's bullying you in school said to you. You know, you don't really have that, that level of rapport. So you spend a lot of your time with this person when you're with, when you're together in silence. And I realized when I was an adult that I got to be the one to cross that gap and initiate the conversation. So, you know, that's something, again, that only hindsight will give you. Yeah. And uh, so, look, being able to write about Bobby and Riley and their, their relationship, I had the, the fortune to be able to write about that, having gone through it, and also kind of understand that it's not because Bobby doesn't love him. It's that Bobby doesn't can't relate to him. And I tried to still show, especially because Bobby tries to save his son. Yes. In the yeah. best way he can at right. the time. And I still wanted to show that that love was there. And even with Riley reminiscing about, you know, his dad trying to teach him how to drive. Uh, you know, during that whole, that frantic, chaotic, you know, scene where Riley's trying to escape his father, uh, which was also partially inspired by The Shining, <laughs> you know, with when Danny's running away from Jack. Right. Uh, so, no, you, Shane, you can go as personal as you want, man. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I just, you know, I I usually will. I th- not often before we talk to Michael David Wilson, but afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, made, he made me realize I could ask shit that will make you cry. Yeah. So. <laughs> that, that was his advice. <laughs> God. You know, he, when I was on This Is Horror, I mean, that was back in May, and it's only just now started airing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's how backwards they are. Uh, you know, we he got we got really deep into the into the weeds on religion 
Uh, that was a fantastic conversation. So he's very good at that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A very smart guy, too. Oh, absolutely. You know, anybody who listens to this, don't tell him I said that. The fucker doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting, though, what you said about your dad, because, I mean, my yeah. dad and I have a we we've always stayed in contact, but it's always been kind of uh, we're really good at small talk. But if we want to talk about meaningful shit, we fucking hate each other. And that was the same thing as what you said after it wasn't until I was an adult and I looked at what was going on and realized I'm the one who has to has to change that. He's, you know. 60 years old he's never gonna fucking change so yeah yeah that uh and to that that spoke to me a lot as well because like me and my dad were close when i was growing up but now that i'm older it's kind of the reverse so what you said that really struck home with me too it was kind of weird because i think i was just talking about this like earlier today that you know like we used to be so close, but now there's like some kind of gap. And like you said, you had realized that, you know, you had to initiate it. And I don't know, it just struck like a really weird chord in me. So I was glad that you brought it up. Oh, no problem. <laughs> Do you guys think that that's a, like a, a male male thing? Like, I mean, obviously nothing is universal in that fashion, but I think it's really striking when you talk about, you know, the, like the, the teaching you to drive. So you're in a very, um, almost claustrophobic, I guess, one-on-one setting. And like you said, if it's someone you're not as comfortable bringing up whatever you want with, um, I'm just curious if, if you all think that's more common in a male-male type situation. Uh, I, I think that... Um, I want to say yes, but I think they're under certain factors. I mean, it's it's it's, I think... It's not, you can't just base it on, you know, male-male relationship. It's, and again, I'm only speaking from personal experience. You know, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not, you know, a sociologist. I, I, you know, I can't really say, you know, on a broad spectrum. But for us, it was, you know, we had nothing in common except my mom. And my mom and my dad hated each other. And, you know, my dad, when we finally started really talking, you know, in my mid-twenties, you know, he said that he had such a hard time because he saw so much of my mom in me. And I get that. Um... You know, we had nothing in common. He didn't doesn't really like to read. He didn't like playing video games. He loves sports. He's a, he was a football player. I fucking hate sports. <laughs> <laughs> but but that being said, I still went with him whenever he called and asked, "Do you want to go see you know see you know UK or EKU play this weekend?" I would always go because I wanted to spend time with him. Yeah, it's your dad. Yeah. And I mean, he would even when I played even when I played basketball in elementary school and middle school, you know, he would come to my games. Uh, but that's really all we had in common. Like we didn't like the same type of movies. We didn't, you know, 
so whenever I would go and spend a weekend with him or something, it was literally us just kind of sitting in a room, me reading a book and him watching TV. And that was it. That's why my dad and I were too. weekends were him drinking and me reading a book. Yeah. So I can't really say that it's, you know, I mean, it could be easily be, you know, a mother daughter thing, too. I, I think it's more personality. You know, I think the personality is a big factor. Yeah. Yeah. And with my father and I, it's kind of just, you know, slightly different than yours in that we'll, our problem is, is that we're like identical twins from different eras. And, uh, Does he also wear a nightgown? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, he stopped wearing the wig. His head got, his head got I'm too sorry. Small that was wig. too easy. <laughs> uh but real, real quick, you know, it's funny you mentioned the the, the, the driving lessons, Laurel, because it, where I learned to drive, where my dad took me to drive, was very close to Devil's Creek. Mm. Uh, that is interesting. There's a lot of yeah. access roads through the forest, and you don't encounter much traffic on access roads. So, you know, I, I learned to drive in a, in a Nissan Pathfinder. That thing's a fucking tank. So, you know, he would take me away from where there would be any, you know, any other cars, <laughs> any other insurance <laughs> liability. So we would go out in the in the wilderness on these access roads and drive for like two hours. And, you know, it was kind of scary because they're like single lane access roads and you've got like a 15 foot drop on one side. But, you know, that's. When I think back on my my teenage years and and my father, I think honestly I enjoyed those to- those those driving you know times where we would go out because it was just the two of us. We didn't we didn't have to talk. And there was classic rock on the radio from a classic rock station out in Knoxville, and I always equate classic rock with my dad because that's where I got exposed to Blue Oyster Cult, Eagles, AC/DC, Led Zeppelin the stones you know so i have fond memories of those drives even though you know the elephant in the room was you know we really didn't know how to talk to each other yeah when i was a kid we called that modern rock (laughs) (laughs) i was just just thinking you're lucky because my dad was in a fucking country well (laughs) is that like when, when you say modern rock was that like the Pleistocene era. <laughs> Dra- I mean, Jurassic. Maybe Jurassic was a bit too soon. No, no, that was. Uh, I mean, what do you think happened to those fucking dinosaurs anyway? Cain and his dad, apparently. <laughs> I'm opening it like Coke. Uh huh. Not sure. a beer. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> See, Rich, you could have used that to disguise, disguise cracking a beer, man, if you knew he was going to do it. Oh, no. I always hit the mute button when I do that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we have one episode you didn't. I need to find that one back so I can make fun of you about it again. <laughs> well, I, I think just kind of overall, I really 
I guess in, in some of these, what I, you know, the observations that I made was that like just in this entire, just very diverse cast of characters and their, and their very different relationships with each other. I think they were all very well handled because, mm-hmm. you know, again, you just, it, there's a whole lot of, I don't know, there's, there's a lot of compassion in how it's treated and just a lot of sort of exploration of, of how these relationships affect one another. Um, and one of the things that was sort of like kind of towards the end and, and was sort of briefly covered was I really liked Stephanie's, you know, memory of her grandmother saying that you can always start over, you know, that yeah. that no that as as screwed up as their childhoods were and as much as their hometown attempted to find them that way, that was the message that she wanted her to take away was, hey, you know, it doesn't matter. You're you're never too old and, and you're never too fucked up to start over. Yeah. Thank you. I think, yeah, that was something you and I talked about a little while back, um, or rather you schooled me very well. Um, I asked you when I was trying to figure out, you know, how the fuck do you get to where you're going when you write a story from point A to point B? <laughs> and and you talked, you, you mentioned... Um, how intimately knowledgeable you are of your characters and how you're kind of able to follow them as long as you know what it is you're looking to evoke with the story in general. Um, does that apply to your novel writing too? Uh, to an extent. I mean, I, I still try to leave a kind of a good like analogy for it is kind of like I get you know prepare myself to go and walk out into the wilderness in the dark with a flashlight but i only bring like you know the minimum amount of batteries so at some point that flashlight's going to go out and i got to find my own way um so like i i kind of know like i knew i knew bobby and riley were going to be at odds right i knew bobby was going to be the the righteous holy roller and I knew Riley was going to be the rebellious teenager um you know so I kind of have a starting point and you're the friction is already there you know that there's going to be friction but where we go from there is part of the magic like I knew it's kind of hard to explain like it, it's it's one of those and in the back of my mind right now i'm saying don't say synchronicity don't say synchronicity it's <laughs> <laughs> funny because i was just sitting here thinking he's gonna say synchronicity uh, it's one of those things that just happens i mean it's like i was talking to, to taff and uh brian kirk you know right right before the the book came out and you know we were talking about how you know it's this it's the the pure imagination part that comes into creativity it's this these happy accidents but i can't even really say that they're accidents because maybe on some subconscious level I know these things. I know how this is all going to link up. But actively, when I'm actively doing it, I don't know. 
Like it's just it's that part where your characters take over and you start following them. Uh, so to answer your question, Shane, I mean, uh, it's a it's a very loosely applied process. Right. Uh, I, you know, I'm trusting, you know, my own intuition and my own imagination to. Once I get, you know, once I have firmly decided on, you know, who these people are, you know, superficially, I'm kind of hoping that they start showing me who they are, you know, emotionally and spiritually. Yeah. Um, let me just say, I fucking love you, man. I love you too, dude. <laughs> we, we always have, when we have these episodes, mm-hmm. it's like we can, we can bring up a minimal topic and we can make a really fucking amazing in-depth conversation about it and kind of study of a particular subject or issue. And I think that's probably as true for you as any other guest we've had, maybe more. (laughs) Thank you. That was all. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Well, I'm going to go watch Hellier now. Yeah, right. What was that? I was going to say, you're kind of required at this point. But... <laughs> See, one of you fuckers has to bail me out of this awkwardness. Now. Uh, okay. I, I do, I do want to say real quick, I really appreciate the three of you taking the time to read my book. That means a fucking lot to me. Oh, absolutely. But it's, yeah. no, it's, I mean, this is really this. I've seen it said, you know, by a bunch of people, and I agree, this is really something special. It like, is. so, yeah. It's, yeah. I feel like there's a lot to it, and I've really enjoyed that we're, you know, that we've had this opportunity to kind of get in depth with it some, because there's just, yeah. I know there's just a lot to it. And it's really kind of an honor this year. I mean, because we've had kind of early to first looks at, um, the fearing books and devil's creek and things like that and those things that means the world to us man when we get something like that in our hands and it's just fucking amazing and owns you you know there's there's we owe as much of a sense of gratitude to you as you do to us you know especially with all that cash you gave me to say this totally <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. All those book sales are paying off, guys. Yep. <laughs> I'm living large with supersized meals for the next week. <laughs> Man, that's awesome right there. Right? For a whole fucking week? Jeez. For a whole week. Ooh. Lucky. <laughs> I can I, can I bring up another character that I really hate though? Please, please. <laughs> yeah. Just to just to take it a different direction. Laura Trimley. (laughs) 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 I gotta say, like, and, and, uh, again, you know, spoilers, but so kind of the last line, and I, I couldn't tell if it was really attributed to her, if it's more just thought in relationship with her, but like, I love my God more. And that whole, you know, attitude through the whole thing, again, sorry to descend into the whole motherhood thing, but like, oh my God, like, fuck you sideways and all the way to Ohio you bitch I'm pretty sure Jacob did 
<laughs> well, I hope it wasn't pleasant. Well, I don't think she enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again, Laura was just, you know, one of these these archetype figures where I wanted to demonstrate how you know, a certain level of devotion kind of makes you forego your, you know, your your instincts. And that, in her case, is the maternal instinct. You know, she, lo- she loves her God and her Savior so much that she would sacrifice her son, her blood, to, you know, in servitude to it. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, that's kind of interesting that you mentioned that because like reading this book, like Laurel said, you're kind you look at her and you're like, you know, wow, she's like a terrible, a terrible human being. But, you know, really, it's not any different. And, you know, no offense to people who, you know, read the Bible or anything like that. But, you know, when you hear like the biblical story of I think it was Abraham who had yeah he was going yeah, to have to choose to sacrifice his son. They don't people don't look at that the same kind of way, whereas you kind of see it in this kind of context and people are like, wow, she's horrible. But a lot of people look at that story and they don't really, you know, see like anything off about that. Yeah, I thought that was kind of an interesting parallel, which I really didn't even think about it until Laurel mentioned that. Yeah, the the dynamic between Abraham and Isaac and this guy just being told by God to go sacrifice his kid and he's like, okay. That in in my mind, like even when I was young and being told that story in Sunday school, I thought that was fucked up. Yeah, me too. I questioned it. Yeah. Well and it's like I'm yeah, no, I mean, like, so, you know, sidebar, that's not my understanding. The entire thing is supposed to be like parable and metaphor. Nothing in there is supposed to be taken literally. But even so, what the fuck kind of parable is that? Right. Like, I, you know, I like. And, Trust and, God, Laurel. Trust him. Not that far. Sorry. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. Yeah, I mean, and and honestly, like, I'm sorry, I feel like that should be, well, that's a judgmental thing to say, but but in in my experience, I feel like that is the natural instinct to stand in the face of, I don't give a fuck who, what, you know, whatever's like a goddamn, what, I don't care who comes down and says, you know, sacrifice your son, they're getting two middle fingers and a fucking nine millimeter from me, like, that's not a thing, (laughs) you know, um, but it's I don't know it, it, there's something too with Laura Trimley. See, I, there's there's the biblical comparison, but there's also when you think about you know again I think we talked a little bit about you know Lisa Quigley and and the, the you know the kind of cult sort of thing that she grew up in, and a lot yeah. of the stories that people tell about you know the 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 ways that they were raised in punitive uh, religions and and punitive sort of households in that fashion. That's kind of the same thing. You're you're sacrificing your child's well-being. Yeah. They're, you know, you you can look at this child and understand that they're suffering and you're still saying you're suffering for God. And that's creepy as fuck. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah, it's just not. I mean, you know, I've I've had. Yeah, well, anyways, I, I'm just saying I've I have run into people that I thought were otherwise intelligent who had beliefs about. And again, like, as I've said multiple times, I, I am a believer. Um, and I think, you know, that there's a wide range of of ways that people believe. I don't think there's a wrong way to believe. Uh, but I also just think that, you know, if you're taking it to a point where you're making someone that you love suffer, it is not about suffering. It should never have been about suffering. Um, and, I, and I think that's also just a, a great point that's made with this whole thing. You know, the whole point of Jacob's church and the whole worship of this is you have to suffer for your Lord. And as much as that seems like it should be flipped, it's not. No. no it's, it's a not. similar message. You know, not to the whole thing, obviously, but to a lot of the way that it's taken. Yep. Uh, for those who are just tuning in, uh, I have issues with religion. I don't know if you noticed. <laughs> I might, too. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, and I, the whole time you were talking, I was thinking about that, that old lady at my mom's church. <laughs> <laughs> Todd's, Todd's sitting there drinking in his seat. Oh, I'm fucking beaming and waiting for the explosion. Yeah, to no shit. <laughs> <laughs> fucking Corbin makes the news after she. Like returns. I just, I just imagine like after she's recovered, <laughs> she calls my mom and like. Well, I read your son's book. Yeah. <laughs> I, I liked it. <laughs> and then she changes the subject, and it's never brought up again. Right. Bless his heart. Bless his heart. <laughs> and your mom wisely just leaves us the fuck alone and moves on. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to, um, just because this makes me think of it. I'm going to give you a short anecdote, which might explain why I actually am still a believer, just because okay. I had a really different, really different experience with it. So I, I grew up in a Presbyterian church. And, you know, when I went through confirmation, I had this this really cool minister, really intelligent dude it was very much about reading and very much about questioning. And part of confirmation was we would attend other churches and, you know, sit through the services and, and talk about them later. And my confirmation partner was this 80 year old woman named Lottie. She was like four foot five you know, this tiny little thing. And so we all went to this church service and I shall not name the church, but you know, six flags over Jesus. And, uh, it was this. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. You know those things. Yes, yes. That's perfect. Though. That's fucking perfect. So we're at six flags. And, uh, and, uh, oh. And it happens to be hot topics that they're talking about that night. And it's this totally bullshit condemnation thing about abortion. And oh, fuck. we don't have to discuss that, but it was offensive in the extreme. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there going like, Jesus, we got to talk about this after this, you know. And we get out and Lottie gets my arm and she says, let's get out of here. I don't like these bigots. And we go to leave. Uh -huh. And I turned to my pastor and he's like, well, that was not what I expected. 
I just don't think I agree with that at all. And we left. Oh, he was Scottish, by the way. I didn't make that. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is my confirmation process is people who you maybe expect would be very conservative and leaning going like, well, those bigots, let's go to Waffle House, you know, so it's a little bit easier <laughs> in those situations. So anyways, I'll quit. But I love the fact that story, though, I mean, it's like, <laughs> go ahead, Todd. I love the fact that the pastor is Scottish. Oh, he was, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, he, he was absolutely awesome. It just uh, made the sermons more interesting, you know. Uh, go ahead, Shane. I, I got something to, to add to that. Go ahead, because I totally forgot what I was saying. Of course you did. I, I knew you were going to forget. It's okay. Um, That's why you interrupted me, you fuck. Of course. <laughs> I was going to say that, like, you describing that reminded me of um, this Baptist church I went to when I was a freshman in high school. They were doing this uh fuck i wouldn't even i don't even remember what they called it it was basically like this group of actors would come and they would put on like this this play essentially at churches and the whole thing was to get you to convert and you know rededicate your life and you know accept jesus and all that bullshit and uh basically the whole thing was like a series of scenarios of kids of teenagers doing bad things like oh she's gonna she's gonna drink for the first time and then she's gonna drive and kill somebody or you know they're gonna smoke pot and next thing you know their grades are falling and all this shit and at the end of every segment the devil would show up and you know (laughs) and send us to hell but the thing is, is that it's hard to take the devil seriously when he's some, you know, when he's some uh, southern hick with a really bad drawl. <laughs> and welcome to hell, fuckers. Oh, don't. Pretty <laughs> close. Like, like, they had him, like he had a mask on and everything, and he, he had like a voice distortion in it in his microphone. So his voice was all like distorted and shit, like he's some death metal singer, and like he's telling these 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 actors and actresses, it's like you go on down to hell. <laughs> Why does hell have two syllables? Hail, hail, H A Y U L L. Weren't you tempted to be like, I'll play the fiddle, fucker. I'll take that fiddle. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to regret this shit. It, it was so fucking funny because at the end of it, like, all these kids, like, just run. I swear to God, they were all fucking paid off. They had all these kids get up and go to the pulpit and everything and fall to their knees and all that shit. And they're crying and all that, you know. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> uh, that would have been me, too. Uh, that's, uh. That's that's actually fucking terrifying to me. And you know. this shit happens, you know, on a regular basis. Like I mean, it's no different than a. It was basically a tent revival for kids. It, I mean, and I've been to tent revivals, also terrifying. Not just for the context and what they're 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 preaching, but also they go on for like five fucking hours. <laughs> oh god, that's yeah. so bad. 
sermon should be 20 minutes tops. Yeah, and and if you don't get the fuck up out of that wheelchair and walk, you don't have enough faith. That's what it is. Yeah, it's right there. It's all about <laughs> Sorry, you. Sorry, Jesus. I'm just too crippled right now. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> In spite of all these gifts you gave me. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that was a digression on my part. Hail. Hail. <laughs> so, speaking of, since Laurel did her Scottish voice and you did your redneck devil voice, um, I'll, why don't you just why don't you uh, describe describe the statue in sexy Batman voice? <laughs> <laughs> What do you mean, the statue of the, the idol? Yeah. <laughs> Getting with uh, that. Describe no, he's not. Oh, Go ahead. That's better. Well, he's, he's rock true. hard. <laughs> <laughs> that's all we really needed, I think. <laughs> oh, fucking God. <laughs> On that note, uh, <laughs> do you guys have uh, do you have anything else burning that you want to talk about? I mean, don't talk about anything burning below the waist or anything. <laughs> no, I got That's a right. shot. It cleared right up. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we weren't going to talk about that on the air. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't uh, know how to follow any of that up. So. Right. Um, I kind of like I kind of like the idea of you know ending with porno Batman saying it's not hard, <laughs> <laughs> only the way, only the right way. <laughs> um, that's it. You've been li- you've been listening to it's rock hard with Todd Kiesling. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, and in all seriousness, um, does anybody have any follow-ups before we wrap this up? Not really any follow-ups other than, uh, you know, I know a lot of stuff's been getting adapted. I hope someone calls uh, Todd for the either miniseries or movie rights for Devil's Creek, preferably for a streaming service so we can all watch it. Uh, my My dream would be... An HBO miniseries. That'd be awesome. Yeah. That goes, you know, with a showrunner that leans into the horror, you know, all the way. Yeah. Would, I will, yeah, I will subscribe to HBO for that. Absolutely. Yeah. So those rights are for sale, HBO. So just throwing that out there. Get the fuck on that. Um, yeah. I... For one, I um, think that this is uh, – we've had a lot of episodes together now. I don't know how many exactly, and we'll have a lot more in the future. But this is one of my favorite conversations we've had with you, you know, except you. for those ones yeah. we have in the dark at night. But... <laughs> <laughs> it's just pillow talk, baby. <laughs> Um, but yeah, seriously, man, we love you. We love having you on, and it's always both a blast and a learning experience, at least for me. Thank you. Uh, I 
I, I like I said on Twitter earlier today, I, I look forward to these conversations when I when I'm scheduled with you guys. And uh, I love talking to you and love you guys, too. It's like I feel like when I'm talking to you guys, it's not like I'm doing an interview. I'm just having a chat with friends at a bar, you know. And that's that's the way we like it. Yeah. And speaking of, remember, when when you make it back to Kentucky, I owe you some cheddar tots. So. <laughs> I, I don't know why bourbon. that made me giggle, but yeah, cheddar tots are awesome, man. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they I would sound eat like the hell out of some cheddar tots. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I don't remember if I asked you this, Laurel, but um, did you ever go? And I don't even know if it's still there because it's on UK's campus. The uh, I think it's the William T. Young Library, the campus library. They have a uh, a grill on to the side. Like you can't access it from within the library. You have to walk around to the side. And uh, I used to eat there a lot. They have or had. I don't know if they still do. They had this thing called the spicy beef wrap. Oh my god! <laughs> like it was amazing. <laughs> I, oh, I that's... love. That's on my list now. I was just gonna say, I know that's 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 on my list now. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go find out. And yeah, still it's, have uh, the the grill I think was called Ovids, O V I D S. Yeah, I've not. I have not been there because I actually was never. I attended UK for a while, but I was. I had never lived on campus there. Okay. Uh, good luck finding fucking parking. But. but yeah. <laughs> So, um, yeah, if everybody's if everybody's done and ready to shut the fuck up now. Um, <laughs> nah, shut up. We're talking about food, Shane. I'm never yeah. going to stop. Shane. I, love food. <laughs> I know. And my, and my wife is thinking about food right now, I'm sure. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Uh, I love all of you guys. Um uh, listeners, do if you have not go get Devil's Creek. Although if you've listened to this episode, you'll just fucking hang us instead. Um, <laughs> you were given plenty of warning. Exactly. Yes, there were uh, spoiler warnings all over the place. Absolutely, so. and they will be in the show notes, and we'll make them obvious. Um, but yeah, buy it if you don't have it. Um, if you do have it and you read it and love it, review it. If you think yes. it sucks, just shut up. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't want to hear any complaints about how there was too much horror in this horror novel. Right? <laughs> uh, that's right. It's a to real quote Shirley thing, Jackson. <laughs> if you don't like my peaches, don't shake my tree. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I don't want to talk about your peaches, though, Todd. So I'm gonna it was hang. a Shirley Jackson question. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. This is always fun. Uh, we will have you back on anytime. Again, sure. Uh, we'll prank call you again sometime soon. Again. <laughs> yeah. I love the prank calls. Yeah, it's coming. Awesome. <laughs> love you, man. Take care, thanks, guys. Todd. Too. Have a good yep. night. Have a good night. Bye. <laughs> Is somebody going to hang the fucking thing? <laughs> <laughs>